Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. You're listening to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Black Women's Health and Motherhood. This week is Black Maternal Health Week, and in celebration of that, we are diving into the history of Black maternal health in America. We start at the beginning of America and slavery, what Black maternal health looks like through Jim Crow, and up until today. And then we'll end the episode with a story from one of Katina's experiences. We hope you enjoy the discussion. We are in the middle of Black Maternal Health Week, and we've been wanting to do an episode on health disparities in general, and we are going to end up doing that episode. It'll just be coming down the line a little bit further along, but we did want to do one to celebrate this week and try to educate people as much as we could on Black Maternal Health. So, Garen, set us up. What do we, what do we need to know before we dive into disparities in health stuff with Black Maternal Health Week? As we've talked about before, lies are sticky and they form over generations and they pass through time in ways that still shape the way we view the world today. And there are specifically about black women, there are multiple stereotypes and lies about who black women are that shape the way they are treated today, both through just individual relationships, but also by the systems in America, the healthcare system specifically, stereotypes and treats black women differently. And those disparate treatments stem from and tie back into history and the, the ways that black enslaved women were treated. So we're going we're, we're gonna to go back and start at the kind of antebellum history of how black women were viewed, and then we're going to kind of trace the line through to the present. So it sounds like what's going to happen, similar to like what we were doing with redlining and a lot of people, that with the idea that you either think there's two ways to think about where you can stereotype black people, and one is a racist viewpoint, and one is not. One is, hey, they're they're just inherently not as smart, they're lazier, they don't do as much, which has been proven in every single aspect to not be true. Or you, you have to believe that there are systems in place that are causing the disparities. And so it sounds like what's going to happen with health is we can do the same thing with the you know, generational wealth gaps and stuff that we kind of talked about with redlining and real estate and stuff is probably, I'm assuming that we're going to kind of start veering that way with health disparities. It's not that black people are, or certain types of people are even more unhealthy when they're born. There are there are things that have happened that have caused these disparities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and in studies, they they've done studies, and, and we'll get more into this later in another episode. But they've done studies where they will actually kind of blind doctors to the race of the people that they're treating, and or use actors to kind of say all the same things, but from a different race. And when they blind doctors to the race of persons that they're treating, doctors will prescribe the same medicines and the same practices in both cases, where they don't if they see the race of the person. There's, there's mm. significant statistical differences in how doctors treat patients if they see their race. And then the, the studies have further shown that health disparities vanish when that happens, that when black people retreat, are treated the same way, then the health disparities go away. To your point, there's not biological 
or you know other differences that cause the reality of health disparities today. And, and the health disparities today, just to show how significant they are, more than 80,000 deaths a year can be attributed to health disparities, to black people dying at a higher rate because of inadequate medical treatment. So we're talking a huge and significant number of deaths every year. And we ought to just pause on that and just realize this is an emergency. And I, I, th- I think sometimes people think, oh, health, that, that's not something that is my area of interest, so I'm just going to tune out. This is an emergency. 80,000 people a year dying unnecessarily because, for one example, black people who have heart attacks on average wait 20% longer in, or 20 minutes longer in the waiting room of a hospital before they're brought back to be treated. On average, 20 minutes of extra time. That These disparate treatments because of stereotypes and racial bias, sometimes conscious on the part of racist doctors, but oftentimes unconscious because doctors, maybe they're not intentionally racist, but they have inherited these lies that have passed through time about how they view black people, and those lies make them treat black people differently. And you've said, you've kind of addressed this in the past with, hey, everybody has that. So it's not like you're inherently, oh, wow, you're a terrible person because you have this bias in your head. Mm-hmm. But you've kind of told the idea of realizing when you're doing that. What do you, and then what do you do with that when you realize it? Yeah, yeah. Everyone has, well, not everyone, but the studies have shown that the vast majority of people, even black people, can have anti-black implicit bias. Like people in our culture are taught that black people, uh, either directly taught or just through the, the background noise of our culture, have learned that black people are inferior or are not as smart or not as hardworking because those are the stereotypes that pervade our culture. And so those form implicit biases and sometimes we can have those even unconsciously. And the majority of Americans, when they take tests to measure implicit bias, the majority of Americans have implicit bias. And so we talked before about how do you process that? So I took one of these tests that Harvard has an implicit bias test and I scored that I have implicit bias. How do we think about that? I think the, the response should not be just automatic shame because that shame keeps us from dealing with the reality that that's there. And instead, I think the better category of how to think of it if you have implicit bias is that it's the temptation to treat other people differently. But temptation is not the same as sin. Like the Bible says, even Jesus was tempted yet without sin. The implicit bias that we have is our temptation to be unequal. But our response to that can either be to fight against it and to, through loving, push towards other people and try to see them equally and treat them equally. And that needs to be an intentional effort because we have implicit bias, because we, if we have the humility to recognize that reality, then we know we have an intentional, we have to be deliberate and we have an obligation to be deliberate to love people equally. And that means pushing back against our natural inclinations, which are not going to be leading to an equal system, a fair system. Right. So let, let's back up and let's dig into a little bit of the history of how some of the stereotypes formed. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stereotypes and what they are and how they infiltrate the, the systems of today. Going all the way back to antebellum and during the period of enslavement in America, planters had a huge financial stake in the fertility of black women. Because whenever it had been the case in British law and the law basically excluding black people, the law for white people in general, so in British and in colonial America, was it was a patrilineal society. But for black people specifically, they made an exception that any child of a black enslaved woman would be enslaved, even if the child was also born of a white landowning planter. Okay. And so what that did is it created this system where white planters had a financial stake in the fertility of their enslaved women and they had the basically the incentive to rape their enslaved women because the children that came, the offspring of those rapes would be enslaved and grow their plantation. Let's go back to 
the antebellum era and talk about the systems and how they worked at that point. So during antebellum, there was a huge financial stake that planters had in the fertility of their black women, of the, their black enslaved women. And when you're saying planter, you're... Who planters, so the plantation class. So actually, the three quarters of white people in that uh, in the South during slavery did not own slaves, which is kind of crazy to realize that the whole system depended on the wealthy white landowners and planters convincing the majority of white people who really didn't benefit from slavery to go along with it. Because if the 75% who weren't really benefiting from it if they had rebelled against the system, it would have been overthrown. And the way that that happened, the way that planters and the landowning class got the support of poor whites was through racism, through just sowing this idea of white supremacy. And basically that was the benefit that the majority of white people had. Yeah, They were indirectly the, benefited from... Well, their benefit was more of a psychological one than an actual one. The, their benefit was just you get to feel like you're better. There wasn't really all that much benefit, but there was... There was also the the flip side of the coin was there was terror and fear because if you rebelled against the system, white or black, then you received threats and fear and discrimination. But the majority of white people, so when I say planter though, I mean the 25% who actually were landowning and slave owning. And there was a huge incentive for, for them, for their black and slave women to have lots of children because those children would all be enslaved. Right. So just one planter, a quote from one planter in that era says, I own a woman who cost me $400 when a girl in 1827. I admit she made me nothing, only worth her provisions and clothing, but now she has three children worth over 3000 I would not this night touch $700 for her. Her, her oldest boy is worth 1250 cash and I can get it. You see him just talking about her fertility was her value to him, and he yeah. received tenfold his investment just on her having three children. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man on the farm. A big financial incentive for black enslaved women to have lots of babies. So plantation owners, they tried various methods both carrots and sticks, to try to get their black and slave women to have lots of children. Some of the things that they would do is they would give extra rations to their enslaved women who were pregnant. The owner of a Georgia plantation gave slave families an extra weekly ration for the birth of a child. Virginia planter rewarded new mothers with a small pig. Some women seemed especially to appreciate presents that they would get that recognized their femininity, like a dress or ribbons for their hair. So they would basically bribe and give financial incentives for women to have babies. Can I just interject here that the women, they didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So it was a a matter of them accepting accepting their conditions and them taking gifts or enjoying gifts. That that came at a great expense. So they weren't, I just have to say, like, those weren't favors. We know that. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know that. Yeah, but well, that's yeah. important to just keep in mind with honestly everything that we talk about. Yeah, pre emancipation. Mm-hmm. I mean, even past the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Like, and it can easily your mind can easily shift because, especially from someone that was in public school, that's just like you know you hear the term slave or slavery, and you and it was legal, so it was okay. We we have a big thing in our world where it's like, well, if it's legal, then it's okay. Well, or, or if we if we say, well, they you know accepted gifts, it's like, what were they going going to do? Yeah, they yeah. had no choice. They had no voice. They had no choice. They mm-hmm. didn't own themselves. What what were they going to do? They had to live to see another day. Can you imagine being hostile towards your rapist or oppressor in a in a system that was created to benefit your racist your your rapist or oppressor? What there were no choices. Yeah, and the the reason kind of to, to bring this forward is is just to highlight the planters' manipulative attempts to have to to get their enslaved women to have more children. But the basically what would happen is if the these enslaved women refused, despite the essentially the bribes, the, these manipulative bribes to have more children, then they would get negative consequences. And it would end with the the threat was master rape, which we'll get into in just just oh a second gosh. here. 
Other planters would give, if women had six children alive at any one time, they would give them Saturdays to themselves. So they would bribe them with Saturdays off. And some would basically hold out the promise of giving women freedom if they had 12 children. And now whether they actually f- like stuck to that, who, who knows. But that was a system that was used. And I think it's important to know that having a baby a few hundred years ago was a very different... Dangerous. Da- it was way more... I mean, it, it is still dangerous yes. even today. Mm-hmm. But a couple hundred years ago, I mean, it was... Very dangerous. It, what they could, it wasn't just oh, let's fix that and give them in, you know, care flight them to a nicer hospital. Mm-hmm. So and these women that. still had to work during their pregnancy. Their quotas of how much cotton they had to pick or how much work they had to do was not reduced in most cases until the third trimester of their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So they were working, oftentimes not receiving more food or assistance, and then after delivering. The baby, they would very quickly have to go back and continue to work. And there are reports that there are women, sometimes black women were made to go return to work the the day of having a baby. There's reports of that. And that that was common, the day of, the day after having a baby. Mm-hmm. And in and, and, and fear of being beaten. Mm-hmm. And then even after that, they have a young child, their work wouldn't be reduced during the period where they're nursing or during the, like, you know, all waking up multiple times a night to nurse their baby. And their, the work expected from them wouldn't be reduced. So there was just all extra being a mother on top of these expectations that you do all this work. Well, and then on top of that, many times black women would have to nurse white babies. And there, even throughout Jim Crow, Black women would their ba- their own children would starve because I mean their black black women would be mal malnourished in in the conditions the traumatic conditions in which they lived and the lack of care the care would be absolutely minimal because pain is not believed and they're just just very almost like savage treatment of black women well definitely savage treatment of black women that rendered conditions just horrific for them to, one, give birth to a child and, two, care for that child, but also having to use their bodies as nursing tools for their master's children. Mm -hmm. And then just to pause for a second to consider, some black women were just infertile, which is a tragedy in our day. But thinking back then, with all this pressure from, from master's, for women to have conceived children. And some of these, most slaves were in marriages where they were faithful in their marriages for life other than, or with the exception of, masters would oftentimes divide marriages by selling one spouse to a different master. So 20% or so, at least it's a lowball estimate, is that 20% of marriages ended through masters selling one of the spouses to away to a different plantation. and even if they weren't selling them, they could still force them. I mean, it's rape, period. But they could force them to breed with someone that they weren't married to, which is a great conflict of morality for people who were committed in their marriages. Or they would just make them marry someone else because the marriages of the, the enslaved people were not recognized by the law in the South. So they could just say, no, I don't consider that a real marriage. So you have to marry this other person. But in the cases where they were allowed to be married, essentially, they, they were faithful, they pursued a strong nuclear family, they had strong familial ties where, where in enslaved communities they would call older, the, the older black people aunt and uncle and refer to younger black people as sister, brother. And there was strong, both real, like blood ties and kinship ties that formed where they would just consider each other family and would would pull together. But for women who were infertile, they had both the the sadness and the internal pain of if you were in a marriage and can't have children with this spouse that you love. There's both the sadness of that, but then on top of that, there was then persecution from the masters and the, the planters because of that infertility, because they saw it as a loss of their investment. And so oftentimes infertile enslaved women were sold off or received cruel treatment or reduced rations. 
a report from the 1840 Anti-Slavery Convention in London said, quote, Where fruitfulness is the greatest virtues, barrenness can be regarded as worse than a misfortune, as a crime, and the subjects of it will be exposed to every form of privation and affliction. Thus, deficiency wholly beyond the slave's power becomes occasion for inconceivable suffering. Also, Southern courts established rules for dealing with sellers' misrepresentations about the fertility of the enslaved women they were trying to sell. Because they would oftentimes try to sell off the women who were they knew to be infertile, and they would misrepresent that. And so add to that, compound to that, that even women who were either infertile and being raped or fertile and being raped, the wrath that they were incurred from the white mistresses, the white women who were married to the slave masters. I mean, it's just abuse upon abuse upon abuse and a terrorism to black bo- black women bodies. Yeah. Yeah, that they black women would be raped by the master and then his wife would be bitter at the black woman and jealous because because of her husband's unfaithfulness. And then on top of the sexual assault and violence, the woman would also then be mistreated by the white women. Physical abuse, mental, emotional abuse, abuse to their children that they were forced to have. Just mm-hmm. just a cycle of abuse that no one should have to endure. And I know we'll keep moving along here, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that all of this has to do something to a person psychologically. Exactly. And that and and that does scientifically actually even transfer biologically. Yeah, Trauma does. True. Epigenetics. But like the idea that all of this happening that just psychologically to black women in general is doing something. And it's it like you have to you have to adapt. Like you said, like they, there was no out for them. They couldn't just stop what they were doing. And then also that that has to on the flip side for white landowners and the 25%, that has to psychologically be doing something to them mm-hmm. and it's not great. Yeah. And we'll get into that like some of the ways they justified it. They justified it essentially by painting this picture of of black women as being Jezebel's being like wanting sex continually and being unsatisfied. And so that was their justification for why we can rape them because they, so they, they painted this picture of black women that justified their own sexual lust and made it okay. And then white women were, the stereotype of white women was that they were very kind of chaste and, chaste pure. and pure and prudish. And so those became the stereotypes that kind of backfilled the reality of what the white planters were doing. And those stereotypes then passed through time, and we'll have to trace some of those threads. But before we get into that, I just want to cover one more thing, and then we're going to get into some of those. And that's just the, the methods that the, planting, uh, the planters would use to maximize the, the children that their enslaved women would have. So one we've, we've kind of already touched on is that they would use studs. And there you can see, you know, there were flyers and advertisements for studs that the, the black men who were really strong or just physically capable of doing more work would be rented out by plantation owners to other plantations to be used as studs. So just breeding. And we've talked about this before, but I think it's just... In this context, it's important to to not just say as a passing comment, but to recognize that this is the reality of how slavery worked and how cruel and just disgusting it was. That these studs would be rented out, they'd be called stockmen, traveling N-words, or breeding N-words. And you can see just the historical record of how this was a system that black people, we've said before, black people were bred like animals, but don't take that as just this throwaway comment that that that's the actual reality of the system. Yeah, there's not a there's not a pretty way to paint slavery. The 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 prettiest way that America has has done it is just not addressed it because there isn't a way to explain it that's not just revealing evil. Well, and to delegitimize the the true effects of it. That's the, you know, they have to doll it up, which is why they've allowed 
so much glorification of the Confederacy in a country where the Union won. They have allowed this pacification and glorification of the Confederacy because most of the country was engaged in this behavior because it fueled and fed the country. And so even the Union was not the friend of the black person. And so that's why you know, Confederate monuments and, and, the, and, the, and the Confederacy is still glorified in a country that fought against it because there's this pacification and there's this blood guilt across the, <laughs> across the lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another method that was used on that, along those lines of breeding is that planters would sometimes castrate the yeah. black men who yeah. were physically less strong or less muscular in order to prevent their, I mean, it's basically a form of eugenics. Yeah. And then we alluded to this earlier, but just to kind of talk a little bit more about master rape was another method that was used. That there were, basically, it was a widespread system where it was just accepted throughout the South that white masters could rape the black enslaved women and that there would be no consequences. And most laws, most states had no laws that considered rape against a, a enslaved woman to be rape at all. There was no crime of rape against an enslaved woman, except for in a couple states, for example, Virginia. But in Virginia, there is not a single instance of their law against rape ever being used against a white plantation owner mm. against a, for the rape of a slave. And even if they had attempted to do so, black people weren't allowed to testify in courts against white people. So there would be no conceivable way to even prove that a rape had occurred. And then some, yeah, some states explicitly excluded black women from the protection of their rape laws. Others just didn't mention them. So in short, for most of American history, the crime of rape of a black woman did not exist. So let's take a minute and just talk about some of the stereotypes that formed for black women. So during antebellum, one of the main ones was the idea of Jezebel. Uh, later on, kind of during Jim Crow, it was the idea of the mammy. And then kind of more modern is the idea of the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the Jezebel, it, it was all through culture, media, literature, music. It was pervasive. And as early as 1736, the South Carolina Gazette described, quote, African ladies, as women of strong, robust constitution who were not easily jaded, but able to serve their lovers by night as well as day. I mean, that's a publication, just publishing that. That was so the cultural view that it was not viewed as inappropriate or scandalous to, to, for the Gazette to publish that. And then in academia, also reinforced it, historian... Philip Bruce in The Plantation Negro as the Freedman in 1889 argued that without the moral discipline imposed by slave masters, free blacks were regressing to their naturally immoral state. He devoted two chapters to an exposition of black women's lascivious impulses, which he claimed had been loosened by emancipation. Moving into Jim Crow, there the the Jim Crow era laws just continued to reinforce this low view of black women. They denied the title of Miss or Mrs. to any black woman. There were taboos against any kind of respectable socializing of the races. There was a an outright refusal to let black women try on any clothing in clothing stores. They they had to buy or purchase clothing without trying it on. They could only try on hats if they wore some essentially a bag over their head so that the hat wouldn't actually touch their head. There's these stereotypes of black women being not feminine that resulted in, in many cases, they didn't have female, black female restrooms. So black women had to use the same restroom as black men, whereas for white people, the the restrooms were divided by sexes. Mm. And then another stereotype that kind of came out of both antebellum and passed through Jim Crow was the idea of the mammy. And the mammy was a bad mom, but a good maid. And the stereotype was that she cared more about the white children that she was helping care for and raise than her own black children. And if that wasn't true, if there were, if there were black maids who tried to care primarily for their own children, they would be fired. 
And so for many black women who had children at home during that era, and, and during that era, 40% of black women had to work outside the home to provide money to help care for their family. And so for many black women, the choice was either you go and you work for this white family, essentially neglect your own children, but provide money for their sustenance, or you stay home with your children and you watch them starve because the system was was designed to impoverish black families, both the sharecropping system and just, I mean, they actually, they literally criminalized it under the black codes for black fathers to look for a better job. If they were working for a plantation, they had to get a note releasing them from the plantation owner in order for them to go look for work elsewhere under Jim Crow. And so there was no ability to, no upward mobility, no ability to improve their income. And so black women oftentimes had to go and work as mammies. But then in that system, they were then stereotyped as being bad mothers, not loving their own children, just only caring about the white children. But that's what they had to go through in order to provide money for their children to even eat. The census marshal in 1849, a census marshal described the cause of death of a black child as, quote, smothered by carelessness of her mother. And the census marshal, Charles Pillow, explained, quote, I wish it to be distinctly understood that nearly all the accidents occur in the Negro population, which goes clearly to prove their great carelessness and total inability to take care of themselves. The historians now believe that the cause of death for both that child and for uh, in the black community was illness due to poor nutrition and abuse of their mothers during pregnancy. So there has to be a desensitizing of, of white conscious for them to be able to do these heinous crimes. And so in order to, they have to buy into black women being less than, black women not being good mothers. And mind you, at the same time, the same black women that were horrible mothers were being forced to nurse and care for white children. So how do you take someone that you believe is a horrible mother and has horrible maternal, bad maternal instincts and put them over care, over the care of your own children? Like the, just the irony, the, the hypocrisy of that. But just the desensitization of the horror that they are inflicting, the terror that they're inflicting on black female bodies. But then also what white people love and love during that time and love now is to see a, like when we're talking about black mammification, uh, the big black mammy concept is that they love to see the mammy from like Scarlett O'Hara who is getting everyone in line. That, That whole imagery of black women getting, you know, being abusive to their own black children or getting their black children in line is an amusement. It's a source of amusement to white people. They love to see black women get onto their black kids and keep them, you know, keep them in line. You see movies and you see, you know, just this propaganda of it. And so you have this black mammy that you have deemed this horrible person, but then you're utilizing her in your system to care for your own children and to make sure that everyone else lines up with the system. Mm-hmm. It's the craziest. Yeah. It's um, hard to I, And I personally, because of my work with black women and, and caring for black women, even my experience in healthcare, because I've worked in healthcare administration for 20-some years, this is something that's just really, it's, a, it's something that I've researched and studied, and I normally don't get e- very emotional during the podcast. The facts are the facts, but it's something that just really pulls on me because I've seen personally how this stuff plays out on just a every day in the psyches of people and how they care for people and how healthcare practitioners care for black women. I mean, you could just see the nuance and you could see the, 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 the hundreds of years of enslavement and oppression play out at a front desk at a, you know, doctor's office or in an exam room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Katina, to your point, the, there was a popular author, Eleanor Taylor, who wrote, that black women had only animal passion towards their children, leading to horrible abuses. She concluded, quote, 
Infanticide is not regarded as a crime among the Negroes, but it is so appallingly common that if the statistics could be obtained on this subject, they would send a shudder through the world. So Eleanor Taylor is basically arguing that mammies couldn't care less about their own children. But then she and other white people would hire those same mammies to care for their own white children. Yeah. It's just such a blatant contradiction. Absolutely. And then the only reason why those mammies would, in in reality, would go and work for those white families who didn't love or treat them and endure as, all the things and that they all endured, the they endured was for their the children. The sake of their children. To provide for their children to, to be able to even have a fighting have a, fighting chance to, yeah. at life. And just yeah. the layers of irony of yeah. it. Yeah. And then a, another stereotype that formed then kind of moving more towards the present is the idea of the welfare queen. This idea that black people are lazy and don't like to work. Obviously during the period of enslavement, that was not a stereotype because black people did pretty much all the work. They were a minority of the population in the South, but did the vast majority of all the work that was done in the South. And oftentimes would work, you know, 14, 16 hour days. Which that alone is, that's ridiculous. That's, we went from that to the idea that black people are lazy mm-hmm. is infuriously hilarious. It's, it's maddening and it's ridiculous at the same time. Yeah, and other stereotypes shifted too. Black people during antebellum were not seen as being criminal. They were seen as being submissive and generally kind and compliant because slavery rested on this idea of the happy slave. So the incentive of white people was view your slaves as happy, content. If they're committing acts of crime, that shows discontent that kind of shows that they want freedom. And so white people couldn't accept that. So the stereotype was, no, they're content, compliant, and they obey all the rules. They're happy. And then during Jim Crow and moving towards today, black people are no longer enslaved. And so they have, they're competing in the same workforce for the same jobs and for the same resources. And so the, the incentives on the white population have reversed, where now the incentive is, you know, view them as less than, not as good of workers, not as capable, because then we can maintain the advantages. But it, it's so ironic to see how the stereotypes have literally flipped in many cases. Always, the, like the only commonality, the only common thread is that the stereotypes benefit white people. Yeah. So the, the, during the welfare peri- period, 78% of white Americans thought that blacks preferred to live on welfare rather than have a job. So just so pervasive, this idea of black people as being lazy, which actual statistics show that most people, even when given free money, still want to work the vast majority of people, even if they have all their needs met, are still going to work because there's something innate in humans that wants to produce and be creative and build and just have something to create. And yet the the stereotype in that day was that, well, and to today, is that black people didn't, didn't want to work. One Mich- Michigan prosecutor said, quote, by the end of the 1900s, the first crack babies will be entering their teens. It is estimated that by the year 2000, about 4 million citizens of the U.S. will have experienced in utero exposure to controlled substances. So there's this panic that happened that swept the country of crack babies that they would, there's quotes, uh, actually I'll read one, that they would not even be able to be essentially fully human, that John Silber, president of Boston University, so this is not just some random guy, president of Boston University, went so far as to lament the exposure of so many healthcare dollars on, quote, crack babies who won't even achieve the intellectual development to have consciousness of God. There's the stereotype of the black community just being consumed by drugs, even though studies have shown that black people use drugs at the same rate as white people. Um, For white people, it's generally seen as a mental health issue. For black people, it was seen as a criminal issue. And it was um, criminalized, which... I mean, we'll get into more in a future episode about mass incarceration. Mass incarceration, but but there was just this this panic about drug use and about welfare mothers and how they were inadequate mothers, and the, the system sought ways to remove children from these mothers who were judged by society to be inadequate, and that's still a huge problem to today. Just like CPS, oftentimes will remove 
children from homes that are actually fighting to take care of their children and do as good as they can with the horrible hand that they've been given in life. And our society, rather than giving basic help that is needed to enable mothers to raise their children who they love, our society would rather expend its own resources that oftentimes even more resources, like removing a a child, like the foster care system is very expensive. And oftentimes a mother could just be given a car seat Mm -hmm. for a much smaller amount, but instead the system would rather take her children away because she's driving without a car seat for them. Mm -hmm. And then our system would rather pay foster care families to care for those children instead of just giving black mothers who love their kids the the basic ability. And, And that's not to say that CPS is always wrong in everything, but there are many cases where there is racial bias that is both statistically and empirically provable. Some of the worst of that is against Native Americans. The rates at which Native American children are removed from their homes are astronomical. So in 1989, in Charleston, South Carolina, they started policing pregnant mothers for prenatal crimes, for taking drugs while pregnant. But So this was a a general law that was passed it didn't mention black women but the law there's only one instance where the law was used to prosecute a white woman and the vast majority of cases it was used to police black women for drug use during in utero even though black mothers use drugs at the same rate as white mothers the philadelphia inquirer inquirer suggested coerced contraception as a solution to the black underclass, noting that, quote, the main reason more black children are living in poverty is that the people having the most children are those who are least able to care for them. And then Newt Gingrich and others have suggested making federal aid contingent on poor women receiving Norplant and other contraceptives in order to fight against this idea of this welfare queen. The idea was, let's force women to stop having children in order for them to receive state benefits. Dorothy Roberts said, quote, considering this history, from slave masters' economic stake in bonded women's fertility to the racist strains of early birth control policy to, steriliz- to sterilization abuse of black women during the 1960s and 1970s, to the current campaign to inject Norplant and Depropovera in the arms of black teenagers and welfare mothers, paints a powerful picture of the link between race and reproductive freedom in America. And another quote from George Fredrickson. If the blacks were a degenerating race with no future, the problem ceased to be one of how to prepare them for citizenship or even to make them more productive and useful members of the community. The new prognosis pointed to the need to segregate or quarantine a race liable to be a source of contamination and social danger to the white community as it sink ever deeper into the slew of disease, vice, and criminality. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, we we share all of this data, and it's so easy for people to just think that, well, that doesn't happen anymore, but it is happening, and we're seeing the residuals of it, the residual impact in the psyche of the uh, of, of, of Americans. And, you know, we're talking about, our grandparents, a generation of grandparents who are now grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts and uncles who bought into this system, who perpetuated this, like, it's, it's not gone anywhere. And I, I, I just hope that listeners, you know, they'll, they'll, hear, they'll hear Garen speak and a lot of stuff will go over folks' heads and they don't realize that we're talking about Black bodies, generations of trauma, generations of, of terrorism against black bodies. And I, as a black woman, as I'm listening to the stats, it resonates with me deeply because I've seen that. In, I've seen these things play out in my community. I've seen it play out in my own life. The trauma, let's just start with the trauma to black babies, you know, because evangelicals really love to throw around the idea of you know, throw around black abortion and black the abortion rate and doesn't want to acknowledge this country's responsibility and onus in the black abortion rate and the treatment of black babies. There's a physical and mental health issue and the infant mortality rate 
Um, I don't know if our listeners knew this, but black babies used to be used as alligator bait. I mean, to trap alligators, put ba- black babies in pits to, to catch alligators. Can you imagine a wow. black mother <laughs> who's being forced to have babies by white slave masters who were either raping them, gang raping them, raping them and black men by forcing them to breed because that's rape. And then your baby being taken from your hands. And you can look, if you type in the word, if you type into Google black babies, alligator babe is going to come up as one of the top searches. And there are, this stuff doesn't age well because newspapers reported Black babies being used for alligator bait, and they would give the mom $2 or some kind of weird so-called gift if the baby even survived. So can you imagine being forced to have a child, but then on top of that, your child being used to lure alligators? Just the devaluing of black life. A blog from Ferris State University talked about how they continued the practice even after slavery. And the Washington Times reported that a keeper at the New York Zoological Garden had baited alligators with piccaninnies. That's what they call black babies. And in 1923, the Oakland Tribune reported that piccaninny bait lures a voracious gator to death and mother gets her baby back in perfect condition in $2. Just the trauma upon trauma upon trauma of generations. And we talk about, you know, I know we talked a little bit about early how it's generational and it's in our bloodline. That trauma is felt today in the infant mortality rate. Black women being dying at an alarming rate during pregnancy and after pregnancy. I have my own story of how I did not know that I, I didn't even know what a fibroid was, but my oldest son. I was pregnant, and I called the doctor's office and let them know that I was in some severe pain. And the medical staff, I think it was a nurse or front desk person, tried to convince me that I wasn't in pain and kept telling me that there was a flu bug going around. And three days days passed, I'm a young mother, a young pregnant woman, and three days passed, I'm in more and more and more pain, and she gets angry with me for calling my doctor And I'm like, something is wrong, you know, and I'm in tears. By the third day, I couldn't even stand up. I was walking around bent over, and I'm trusting a doctor, and I'm calling, crying, and I end up in the hospital, and that's where they find out that I had fibroid tumors, and I almost lost my baby. One more day, and I would have lost my baby, and my baby would not have made it. This is my oldest son, who is now 22. Just not being believed about your level of pain and just the desensitization, like white people have to buy into the system that they've created to enslave black people, to breed black women, to rape black women, and still go to church on Sunday and still be considered themselves good people. And so let's put the responsibility and the burden on black women by mammifying them, by saying that they're horrible mothers while we you know, have them keep our children, have them nurse nurse our children. It, it, it's just insane. But just the being made, again, being made to return to the fields during, after having a baby, forced sterilization during Jim Crow, during imprisonment, convict leasing, mass incarceration, work release programs, like black women would be put into prisons and be allowed to be raped by inmates so that they could cre- have prison babies that were owned by the state that would work. I mean, this is all stuff that you can look up. We've talked about convict leasing. We've talked about mass incarceration and work release programs and how it's basically slavery, like it's been said, slavery by another name. Sarah Bartman, you should look her up. She's a, she was a South African woman who was taken and you, they, they experimented on her in the name of science they, because she had a large, large buttocks. And so they, they experimented on her, and after she died, like even they, they dissected her body and they put it on display in museums in France. Nelson Mandela had to, he demanded her body back to be, you know, 
basically taken to their homeland, her homeland in South Africa. But they had her vagina on display. They had her skull on display in French museums until 2002 and the process of having to beg for her body back. But there's, there are many articles about her and how they just inflicted her and how they poked and prodded in just the sexual medical experiment, experimentation on black women bodies. Just the mindset, the stats of being black, of black girls being raped one in three, you know, black girls being raped often multiple times before they turn 18, how that's a continuation of slavery. The, the mindset toward, towards black women, even by black men and women who engage in this self-hatred because of the system that's been created by white supremacy. I've been to the doctor. I remember my parents taking me to the emergency room and how I was made to wait in excruciating pain at a hospital that my mother was a nurse at. My mom is a retired nurse, and it was a black woman who treated me with such disdain because there is a, there's a mentality that presumes one pres- presumes for one that black people don't have an insurance any insurance i had insurance cuz my mom worked for the hospital but there's a presumption that we're poor there's a presumption that we can't afford the care there's a presumption that we're on medicaid i've seen that in educating doctors myself working in healthcare administration i've had to have conversations with doctors about you know, I had a friend who who he he does like finance management for like Dallas Cowboys. Like he's a he's a a, a great financial advisor, and he went into a doctor's office that I worked for at the time, and the doctor came out and because he knew I he was my friend was like, well, he needs to have this this and this done, but I don't know if he can afford it, and so I'm gonna offer him this alternate care, and I'm like, he's got more money than you. Go back in there and just give him the care. Well, why don't you go talk to him? He's got more money than you. So I have to go in and talk to my friend and say, okay, he wants to do this versus this. And my friend's like, okay, why are you, you know, like, you know, would you like to do this or this option or this option? And I'm literally having to convince this doctor, this white male doctor, that just treat the patient. I tell doctors all the time, treat the patient. You don't think about money. You think about the care of the patient and let the, give the patient the dignity to decide on whether they can afford something because just because of how someone looks, you don't know what they have. There are doctors that don't like to take patients with Medicaid or they treat Medicaid patients differently or they schedule them differently or they schedule their care you know, further out like over a course of time because they, of, of what they perceive that that patient has. I've seen that working in healthcare administration for, you know, 20 plus years now. Black women being criminalized and deemed unworthy of rescue or redemption. We have 75,000, you know, missing black girls and women right now. And how white women can be seen as chaste and pure and worthy of defense and redemption, even when they engage in porn and prostitution, but black women with the presumption that when they're kidnapped or when they're pregnant or when there's something that people don't deem, that people deem unworthy, are unworthy, black women are unworthy of rescue. A white woman can always be redeemed. We've seen that in the White House, whereas black women are critically, um, are criticized for not doing anything anywhere near close to their white counterparts. We've seen that in the White House. Today, pain levels of black women are not believed. I have friends who have died in postpartum care because they've gone to the hospital because they had an issue. And we, we know the statistics of black women and the infant, the infant mortality rate, but even black women dying after having babies because they're not believed. Their pain levels are not believed. When they say something's wrong, it's not believed. And that's regardless of socioeconomic status. So there are black women. There's a black woman who was a, who was a, who was a judge, and her daughter, they're a wealthy family. Her daughter died after having her baby because of lack of care. Serena Williams, Beyonce, like we've seen women that have access to resource and resources and wealth and their health, they have health issues that go unchecked because they're black women. It's an issue that still exists today. And not to mention, 
black women who are in poverty, who don't have insurance, who don't have access. Fannie, Mae ha Fannie Lou Hamer was uh, forced sterilized. And this was in the, what, 50s, 40s, 50s? She was forced sterilized. She couldn't have children. Black people going to white hospitals during Jim Crow and basically dying because they wouldn't be able to be admitted. They, weren't, they, were, they wouldn't allow them to be admitted into their hospital. So black people having a car accident they're li or, or being in a life-threatening situation, and the, there's no black hospital because there's no black doctor, and they're dying because the white hospital has refused to offer them care. I mean, I could just go on and on as I recount even stories that I know of in my personal life, my own personal experience, the experience of my mother, the experience of black women in my family, the experience of black friends, black colleagues, black female doctors who have <laughs> experienced health disparities. And we want to think that all of that is over with because there's access but access does not change the minds and hearts of people for generations. And not even to mention the, the trauma that exists in our DNA that's passed down that contributes to many of the health issues that black people have, like the high blood pressure, the hypertension, black women in the statistics of fibroid tumors, you know, how, how m many black women suffer from fibroid adenomyosis, endometriosis. Those are issues that plague the black, black community, black female, black women specifically, and how we have a lot of these symptoms and issues, diagnoses and issues that don't really exist in other communities because of even redlining and being in polluted areas, being in food deserts, not having access to nutrition, how black people not being able to read or attend college, how that leads to a lack of black resources in black communities, like black doctors, black nurses, you know, how those things over the years, at, during slavery, after slavery, contribute to like these droughts in black communities. Gentrification, how increasing the prices of things impacts historical black communities that are used to having, you know, a certain access that then is cut off because they can't afford things in their own communities. I could just go on and on and on and on and on and on. Having to work in certain jobs because the wealth gap hasn't closed you know, not to mention COVID and how COVID has affected black people and black women specifically, service workers versus people who can work remotely, how that impacts, you know, I mean, I, I just would hope that our listeners, especially the ones that have been listening from the beginning, can really start to tie these things together and see how one thing contributes to the other. Mm -hmm. Also, just poverty leads to anxiety, Poverty, when you don't know where your next meal is coming from or if you're going to be able to make keep the power on or make ends meet, then that increases anxiety that leads to uh, some of the hypertension and some of the high blood pressure. Yeah, and not to mention the mental health disparities. I mean, all this trauma, can you imagine why society being afflicted like this and not thinking that there's going to be, I mean, obviously there's going to be generations of trauma that has to be worked through. And the psyche of the black woman to be, you know, to know that she's thought of as less than, to know that we're, we're, we're treated as Jezebels, thought of as only sexual beings. I mean, that, that there is generation, there are generational ripple effects that lead up to the 75,000 black women and, and, and ch uh, girls missing today. Like, if we can't make those connections, then I don't, I mean, it's right there in front of us. And you mentioned epigenetics. Just to kind of spell that out a little more for listeners who haven't heard of epigenetics, is that there is actual, just, you know that genetics are passed down whenever we have kids. Like, the children will get half the mom's genes, half the dad's genes. But what science has found more recently in the study of genetics is that there's also these things called epigenetics, where the experience of the parents while they're alive, can actually turn genetic information on and off in the actual genetic code. Like our life experience and specifically anxiety and trauma can actually change and activate and deactivate some of our genes in a way that is passed on to children. Yep. So there's actual generational effects that take uh, generations 
to kind of revert back to just a normal level. And, And part of that, you think in a in a way, if you as the mother are, let's say, in a hunter-gatherer society and there's wolves everywhere and your genetic code activates to make you constantly more vigilant because you're in constant danger because of all of these wolves everywhere, then it's actually, it makes sense in that context, it's beneficial for your children to be born constantly vigilant and ready to defend against wolves. Yeah, But in, in our context, what, what happens is that a lot of the black community will inherit kind of a, a higher baseline level of anxiety from this generational trauma. And then rather than our society doing something to aid and help with that, because and basically being like, you know, there's not wolves everywhere. Like you can, like here, let's help you, let's give you counseling, let's help you deal with these generational effects that are a legacy of white supremacy, racism, slavery, all these things. Instead, we criminalize those very things so that black people who then are trying to find ways to cope with their anxiety will often be criminalized for the, their efforts to to medicate themselves where the, where society has failed to provide actual help. So just real quick, I want to say this. Like, think about it like this. Katina, I am, you know, in this generation, I am a, what, what am I? Generation X? I think I'm a Gen Xer. I don't know. But anyway, my gen, me, me sitting here today, my great great-great-grandfather was a slave. My great-great-grandmother passed away. Her, her, his daughter passed away when I was 20 years old. I have children. I am having to undo the work. I'm the first generation in my, like, in, in my family that is, has been given the privilege to be able to afford to undo that, that work of trauma, whereas the generations before me just had to put their heads down and work and endure things that are unfathomable. Even my parents' generation, the things that they had to endure. And my parents, you know, growing up picking cotton cotton at a young age and growing up in abject poverty and the things that they saw in the experience. And my parents living through Jim Crow, okay? So then I have inherited generations of trauma that I'm not going to get into on the show, but I can just tell you, I've inherited generations of trauma that me and my siblings and cousins are now just starting to be able to be a little bit freer in our minds to do the work of. And we have to jump over the hurdles of being able to even trust the establishment of like mental health. I believe in getting therapy and mental health assistance, but there are many people in my generation who do not and for like very valid reasons. But I, so I'm trying to normalize even the conversation on mental health because the mental health trauma is so, like, I see it in my children. There are things that my children are having to work through that go back in the bloodline for generations. There's anxieties and depressions and triggers and traumas that my children have never even witnessed, but they have felt because it's been passed on and we are we are working through and then you take things like that happen like covid and how it impacts the black community significantly more than it impacts in other communities and we're having to work through these things and it's 2021 and people don't think that oh they think slavery was back in the olden, olden days, like thousands upon thousands of years ago. And I'm seeing, you know, the carnage in the generation that comes after me. And we're having to work through those things on it. My husband, like the stories I could tell, the things that we're having to work through. And and like I said, my children that feel, they're feeling things and experiencing things that they don't know anything about. And we're having to slowly peel back layers. Mm Yeah, there's one study that had paid actors and they had a couple black women and a couple white women who were paid actors who went in to doctors and gave the exact same script, the exact same words of what was wrong and what the issue was. Same doctors, Mm -hmm. uh, same group of, it was 287 physicians that they went in and kind of did this test on this study. And then the black women were 13% less likely to receive catheterization than the white women. Yeah, I don't. Have I told this story about when I was having my son, and I had been in labor for 21 hours, and my son went into fetal distress, and so they did an emergency C-section, and my doctor was 
on vacation, but I had my midwife. And so I got a hospitalist for a doctor who gave birth, you know, who, who basically was the OBGYN on call. And he was so horrible. And I was a young, I was 25 years old. And he was so rough with me that even the nurses, the white nurses were appalled. And they, they you know, he was well hated in, amongst the medical staff. And this was right here in Denton. And I remember they gave me um, the anesthesia to go into surgery right before, you know, they, I'm laying on the table and they, the doctor's like having me count back and do all the things. Well, he starts to cut into me and I could feel him cutting into me. I could feel him cutting into me and I started screaming. And he was like, what? You can feel this? And he, he, he like stuck, he stabbed me basically. And I was like, yes, I can feel it. And I'm screaming. And he was like, this is ridiculous. Put her out. Put her out. And I woke up and had a baby. That, that was my experience in having my child. That was my, I wanted water birth. I wanted, to, I wanted water labor. I wanted all this I had. I'll imagine this entire experience of having my first child that was robbed, taken from me by a man who saw me as less than, and he treated me so horribly after I had my baby. I had severe postpartum depression for a very long time. And I'm so angry that I'm even crying right now, but that was taken from me. And I still wrestle with that. And my son is 22 years old. 